Cricket Love Stories with Mini Okagram. Today we're joined by Mo Bobat. Mo, how's things going? Hi Neil, all good thanks. Yeah, good to finally do this because we've been trying to make it happen for a little while now. Uh, all good, as good as anyone. Lockdown's a little bit tough and strange, but uh, obviously with my role and we have an elite sport exemption, so I've got a bit of a variety to my diary anyway. You know, two or three days at the Performance Centre in Loughborough, a couple of days at home. So a reasonable mix and not too bad, enough to keep me busy. Yes, we're going to do a run through of your career, but just to start with, for those that may not know, can you give a, just a high level overview, one, two minute overview of your actual role currently as the men's performance director? Yeah, of course. Well, yeah, it's probably easiest to split in two parts. I've got some, some England team responsibilities and then I've got leadership of the pathway. So I'll do a very quick bit on both of those, but from an England team perspective, I basically, I, I work really closely with Ed Smith and Chris Silverwood. Obviously, Ed Smith is national selector, Chris Silverwood is head coach, but I try and direct our performance planning. So basically looking after our medium to long-term performance plan, work with them on selection strategy. Uh, also things like uh, performance reviews for players, co coach deployment. Uh, and also I, I try and look after the next squad. So obviously with us having multi-formats, Chris Silverwood's working with a team now and I try and look after preparing the next team so that he can pick them up and they're ready to go. So that's kind of my England responsibilities. And then from a pathway perspective, I lead our international pathway. So that includes talent ID, our regional cricket and county sort of talent pathway, uh, our Young Lions and Under-19 programme, Lions cricket, performance analysis and the performance centre. So quite a broad remit, really. So basically those two halves, some England responsibilities and then leading leading the international pathway. So was cricket always a passion of yours from a, from a young age? Yeah, I guess so, very much so. Uh, my dad absolutely loves his cricket. Uh, you know, played a lot of cricket. He, my dad played over in, he lived in Africa, was born in Africa, lived in Africa, played a lot of cricket over there, came over to the UK, played club cricket here to a reasonable standard, actually, initially. So he loves his cricket, and obviously I've kind of got that bug off him. Loves all of his sport, actually. Uh so yeah, real big passion of mine, but I love all things sport, you know, love football as well, big football follower, big cricket follower. But yeah, from a very young age and got my dad to thank for it, but we've always had cricket in the house. You mentioned your love of sport in general, You uh, for your university degree, was it sports science and, and management before moving into the teaching world? Talk us through uh, that early period. Well, yeah, I guess I'll probably go back even before university and as I mentioned, a real real love for sport, which I got from my dad. And you know, I remember specific moments where you kind of get hooked on stuff. So the 92 Cricket World Cup, for an example, was my World Cup where I kind of fell in love with the game. It was the first first tournament on Sky. Uh, my dad got Sky just for that World Cup. It was in Australia, so we were getting up in the night to watch it. Uh, and then, you know, I kind of got a bit of the bug. Uh, my dad used to play park cricket then, so I'd kind of go to park cricket with my dad and do the scoring. And if there was a chance to play, I'd play. So I kind of had that grounding in sort of sport, either through school or, or through the, the passion that, that, that my dad had for, for sport and in particular cricket. Uh, obviously played a bit of club cricket and school cricket. But again, I went to a, I went to a, a school that, that didn't really do cricket. It was state school environment. So, you know, if I talk about some of where I ended up getting to in my career, some of the early foundations were set probably through school. So my PE teacher was a, was a football guy, he didn't really run cricket and, you know, we all badgered him to make sure we had a cricket team and he didn't really, really know what he was doing. So I'd have my club cricket training on the weekend and I would then copy what the coaches did on a Sunday at school on the Monday as a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old, you know. So 
kind of had that early engagement in cricket as a coaching and a playing perspective, even as young as that. Uh, and then I suppose as I move towards your question around kind of university time, as most kids, you play a lot of cricket through your childhood. And I was comfortably a failed cricketer, despite having played reasonable standard. I was nowhere near good enough. I studied uh, A-level PE at college and played a lot of cricket during that period. Uh, and I guess having had some really unenjoyable jobs, I decided I wanted to work in sport. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just thought, well, look, I love sport. I'll stay as closely connected as I, as I could. So uh, I nearly didn't go to university, but eventually I did. I went to Nottingham Trent University and studied sports science and management there. And I guess that's probably where I started to get a bit of a deeper understanding uh, and a deeper interest in sport and what was possible. You know, that was probably before the real boom of high performance sport environments. But there was a number of us kind of on that journey, finding out a little bit more about things like psychology and nutrition, strength and conditioning and physiology and all the stuff that now is kind of common practice, high performance. You know, that, that kind of opened my eyes to that uh, a fair amount. So uni was really important for me, but also from a coaching perspective. I did my level one and two coaching awards at university. Uh, with knots which was really good knots used me as a community coach uh, and i did a load of skills coaching and summer coaching camps and things like that so had quite a, quite a broad sporting experience at uni lots of the sports science stuff lots of applied coaching experience and then as you say i came out of university and got into teaching which is another story in itself i guess you also in parallel were you um, involved in the leicester pathway program as well yeah, well, look, I suppose my teaching and and the sort of pathway stuff kind of crossed over quite a lot, the Leicester pathway stuff. So, you know, I, I, I got a job lecturing to begin with at uh, Leicester College, uh, which I did for about three years. And then eventually I went on to uh, another college in Leicester, Wigiston and Queen Elizabeth College, where I taught A-level PE and also ran the cricket programme. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed teaching, actually, and I learned a lot from there you know my, my deep understanding of teaching learning that helped me with coaching I got from education and doing my PGCE uh, but the good thing about teaching was it lent itself to still doing lots of coaching in my spare time so evenings weekends I just coached basically so whilst I was a teacher I pretty much had two careers you know I was doing one-to-one -one coaching on weekends I was uh, I spent a couple of years being sort of player coach pro at the Neaton Cricket Club in the Warwickshire League uh, I sort of run the junior section at Kibworth, which was my club as a, as a child, then went to Barrow Cricket Club in Leicester, you know, so I did loads of that. But then I was fortunate enough to also get involved with Leicestershire. So I, sort of, I did the under 14 county age group. Uh, I ran that for a couple of years, which was great and some really good, good young players there. Uh, helped out with Russell Cobb, who used to run the academy back then, helped him with what was the sub academy and the academy group then. And also did quite a lot of coach development, uh, which is probably one of the things that I thought I might end up getting into, coach development and coach tutoring and assessing. So I did a bit of that for Leicestershire and run the, run the Coaches Association for a while and also did a little bit of ECB work. So, you know, my stuff with Leicester was quite varied eventually, you know, bits of coaching, but also coach development. You also touched on earlier there that about the nutrition side of things and how, you know, in terms of your studies and the science and everything about that. At that age, did you view cricket as slightly behind other sports? You look at, say, football, for example, and, you know, let's take a manager, Arsene Wenger, when he came in and how he kind of, he's seen as the, the man that kind of pioneered uh, the change in Premier League football. At that age, did you see cricket as slightly behind the times? Well, if I'm honest, having, having not played first-class cricket, I probably didn't understand, if I'm honest with you. Uh, 
you know, clearly I, I know enough now, having been involved for pretty much 10 years in elite cricket, that, you know, I've got a bit of an understanding of the evolution that cricket's gone on. Uh, and it was probably fair to say that in the sort of 80s, 90s, early 2000s, it might have lacked a bit of that professionalism. That's probably similar across English sport. It's that, you know, you, you can probably say that we might have lagged a little bit behind football because money talks, but ultimately, yeah, if you compare it to some of the sports in the States, for example, we were probably all a little bit behind. Uh, and Arsene Wenger is a good example of someone who came over and bought a lot of European influence and stuff that he thought was common practice in European football wasn't really here. Uh, and cricket was probably similar. Uh, so we've evolved quite quickly. Uh, I spent quite a lot of time and have done in the last few years I guess, interacting with other sports. And typically I find the same thing. You know, there'll be a number of things where I think, well, they've, they're ahead of us or they've got us covered. And there'll be a number of things where I think we're ahead of them and we've got them covered. But in general, you kind of think we're all trying to do the same thing. It's just a different game. So, you know, if I compare this to other sports in general, there's a lot of similarities, some, some nuances and some differences, but a lot of similarities. And we've evolved quite a lot in the last few years. And probably the biggest injection in terms of English cricket would have been the sort of early 2000 period and the setting up of things like the National Performance Centre, uh, you know, which was, you know, which was run, I guess, a mirror of the Australian model. Uh, and then also central contracts made a big difference to professionalisation of English teams. And, you know, even, even talk about previous captains of that era, talk about the change it made in terms of changing room dynamics, training all year, rest and rotation, being rewarded appropriately. All of those things made a big difference. And then 2011, um, started working for the ECB. Was it with the under 17s? Can you talk a little about about how you got it, got the role? Yeah. So as I said, at, at that time, sort of 2010, 2011, I was teaching and coaching, so kind of doing my own thing. I'm pretty happy. But I saw a job came up with the ECB uh, that that I went for. I managed to get really, but it was a split role. So half of the role was working and leading the uh, England development programme under 17s. So mainly 16 and 17 year olds as part of the bigger under 19 programme. But the other half of the role was a regional role working in the London and East region, uh, supporting the county academies there and also running the London and East kind of Bunbury under 15 team and a bit of applied coaching there. But I lived in the Midlands and worked in the London and East region. So I quickly got used to doing a lot of traveling and a lot of time away from home, which now is normal for me, but back then obviously wasn't. But that was great. It was good for my development to learn. You know, I knew quite a lot about Leicestershire and our local county dynamics. I didn't know much about other counties. So it was good for me to learn about another region and forge some new relationships from that side of the role. But the, the under 17 stuff, we, we had a guy called Simon Timpson, who was in charge of our development program at the time. And that was kind of his brainchild to a degree. And it was that was a great learning experience for me because, you know, I had, to re- I had to learn quite quickly. You know, I remember my first, I started in November 2011 and in February 2012, so literally two and a half months later, whatever it was, myself and the new head coach, you know, I was manager of the programme and he was uh, a head coach of that under-17 programme. And we did a we did a tour to India, a training camp tour to India. And it was, we had something like 22 players. We had a staff full of ex-England nationals, you know, Richard Dawson, Richard Johnson, guys who had played, for England and played a lot of county cricket. I hadn't played any international cricket or county cricket. Big management team, big group of players running a tour in India, which is carnage at the best of times. So it was a steep learning curve around international age group cricket and managing tours and managing big staff teams and dealing with high potential players. I think on that trip, I had the likes of Dom Sibley, Ben Duckett, you know, Ed Barnard, guys like that who've gone on and done good things. But just goes to show how quickly 
they grow and develop but also I had to learn from that experience and it was just great surrounded by loads of experts like Simon but other, other guys from other industries you know Lou Hardy who was in charge of psychology at Bangor University Floyd Woodrow military background but also cricket people like Tim Boone John Abrahams David Graveney you know real deep cricket knowledge we had experts in psychology like David Young uh strength and conditioning and sports science you know I got to see all of that applied stuff from my my degree all of my cricket insight you kind of see it in a really best practice model and it was it was a great learning experience for me actually. When I was doing some reading I read about this talent PhD that was 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 in when you first joined in 2011 and then um, how it developed up through you know you gained the England under 19 role and then eventually uh, the path, um, the identification lead role in 2016. But can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I mentioned Simon Timpson earlier, who was running our, our development program. And he, I guess he had the vision of trying to create or at least have a, a system by which we, we track talent over a longer term period. Now, what I mean by that is a lot of sports assess players. Of course they do. But, but in his mind, and as we've seen, not many organisations have done a good job at assessing players from adole early adolescence all the way through to being senior internationals and doing it for long enough to really learn from that information. And he set up a, the first stage of a PhD that a guy called Ed Barney uh, led. Uh, he's now performance director at GB Hockey, you know, really good guy, bright guy. And he set up this PhD into talent. And, and in essence, basically, he was trying to assess the, the value or the validity and the reliability of things like scouting uh, performance stats and data sort of non-conventional performance stats because we've always in cricket had things like average and strike rates but this was stuff that was a bit different and also some what we would call talent tests so assessing talent a bit like NFL combine type testing uh, and to see whether there was any value in it and that PhD really it gave us some really useful insight and he along with myself and a few other people who were working on the program at the time we, we kind of set up a scouting infrastructure for his PhD, but then we quickly applied it to our actual work and we started to use it to pick teams. So, so it's fair to say that, that that PhD was a real catalyst for how we now identify and select players. And then in 2016, when Andrew Strauss started as managing director and he made a few changes to our pathway, he asked me to, you know, he saw some of that work and he asked me to extend that thinking further up the pathway towards the Lions. And we started the second phase of the PhD, which Ben Jones led, who now works at Chelsea, another really good guy uh, who evolved the PhD further. And we basically took all that good practice from under 19 level and our development programme up the pathway to Lions level. And then in 2017, Andrew Strauss kind of said, look, I like what you've done there. Let's extend it to England as well. And let's kind of revamp England selection. And he had some ideas of stuff he wanted to do with selection and, you know, that co coincided with us appointing Ed Smith, who now leads, you know, as national selector. So Ed and I ended up working really closely together, me leading on player ID and him leading on selection and me trying to be the information provider for our system so that he can make smart decisions. So yeah, it was a really interesting journey. And I suppose two points I always make about that journey. One is it was interesting having something that, that evolved from bottom upwards, which is quite rare. Normally in elite sport, you get best practice at the top. And then it works its way down to everything else. And this was an example of the other way around. It started at the bottom and worked its way up. And that was good because we could be really creative. We could do a lot of trial and error. We could learn from our mistakes. And the second thing is it showed that many of the improvements we made had a real evidence base to them. It wasn't just finger in the wind type stuff. You know, 
there was a scientific rigor behind everything we did, which meant that if we were trying to make changes and be creative, it was underpinned by some real sound research and principles. So two real benefits there to how we've evolved to where we eventually evolved to. And you know, I, I then ended up being full-time responsible for player ID for a couple of years, which I really enjoyed. And is it something that also makes you know, your scouts a bit more accountable as well? Yeah, to a degree. And, you know, in terms of our player identification, we try and have what I would call like a holistic profile. So we want to know what a player's statistics are, conventional and non-conventional. We want to know about them as a person and their psychology and their well-being. We want to know a lot about their physical outputs. We also want to know about subjective wisdom on their cricketing expertise. You know, we want, we want as big a picture as possible so we can create a really strong picture about the player. Now, by nature, some of that information is slightly more subjective than some of the more objective information. You have a bit of a blend of your information sources. And if you take something like scouting, it's thought to be a relatively subjective endeavor. But, you know, one of the principles that came out of our PhD was this concept of multiple eyes and multiple times, <clears throat> which basically means if you're trying to avoid one person seeing something once and you're trying to layer it so that lots of your experts see something lots of times, if they independently report and you can aggregate it, you create a bit of a picture. So in, in one way, it added validity to our scouting, but it also, like you said, helped make them accountable because we've started to learn now through that PhD and through the analysis we've done, which of our scouts, well, as a group, how good are we at predicting and, and, and sort of scouting, but also as individuals, how good are we and who, who's better at predicting than somebody else? And take Collective as an example. I think we were able to show that in scouting 15 and 16 year olds over a sort of seven, seven or eight year period, uh, I think we were able to accurately predict Lions debut at about 80%, which, which is fantastic predictive return really. You know, our scouts were able to predict Lions debut with 80% accuracy as a collective. That's pretty strong. We haven't quite got to England yet because we're still trying to get enough players through so that it's a big enough sample size, but you know, you, you take that, it just shows that scouting is worthwhile if you structure it well, organise it well, get them focusing on the right things, report appropriately, aggregate the insight, use it to influence decision-making. We were able to see that actually as a group, our experts are quite good at predicting actually. So you must be working also very closely with the counties. You say for just from a, someone outside looking in, you should look at cricket and it's a stats-based game. But if you're talking about like behavioural um elements to it and all that kind of stuff you must be working closely that relation must be strong with all the counties as well for this to work yeah very much so uh and we talk about the phrase we use is we need a strong support system that's every element doing its job you know counties typically know a lot about their players so we have to lean on that insight uh, they've probably worked with them for a longer period and know them know their childhood and early adolescence really well so we have to capture that so we do quite a big job at gaining their insight even take something like scouting our scouting process starts at senior team level and under 19 level with asking the counties their thoughts on their players and their recommendations. So we start with their insight actually, but that, that carries on throughout the journey. And even when it comes to selection decision-making, we try and make decisions in the player's best interest, which means us and the counties have to discuss that. Sometimes, most times we agree, but also sometimes we might disagree and we need to really put the player at the heart of it. So, yeah, look, we, we, we talk in the age with the counties a lot and, and this summer was no better example with things like COVID and playing behind closed doors and having a bigger group of players. You know, we invested a huge amount of energy in talking about player availability, fitness, return to training through COVID. 
retain and release in squads behind closed doors. You know, there was so much dialogue. You know, I don't think a day goes by without me speaking to multiple directors of cricket about the player or players. So, very much so. Yeah. It's probably also no coincidence then that there's a huge influx of young players that have made the full uh, England debuts, looking Pope, Curran, Crawley. Because you've had that data from, from as you said, from 15, 16, which back in the day, probably you wouldn't have had. Yeah, certainly if you look at the last few years, you know, 2018, 2019, certainly, you know, you go back those couple of years, we've debuted a lot of guys under, under the age of 20. Uh, which is unusual, you know. I think we had in 2018, we had four debutants under the age of 20. I don't think that's ever happened in English cricket before. Uh, even take take last year, our series in South Africa, I think we had four or five players under the age of 25 or 24. You know, again, quite rare. Uh, but it's great. It's great to see because I think where we've, where we've benefited is we've probably been able to trust our judgments more because we've got more insight on those players. Now, it's important to say that it doesn't mean that just picking young is good. Sometimes picking a senior player who's a late developer is also really, really good. And they might fly and we might have missed them otherwise. But I think if we, the barometer is, if we have the confidence and conviction to pick young, because we've got enough insight on them, because we've scouted them, we've analysed their data, they've been on some of our programmes, whether the under-19s or the Lions, we've assessed them under pressure, we've seen how they respond to the environment, you know, if we can do all of those things, it makes a really big difference to our ability to make those decisions. So, yeah, very much so. I think we've had that period of time analysing them and assessing them and learning about them, you know, being able to blood them into the England team. And the England team environment at the minute is really accommodating of young players. So they've been able to thrive quite quickly. And then the World Cup journey, the successful World Cup journey. Talk us through it. Andrew Strauss, a lot of credit go goes to him. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's fair to say that he was the architect from the outset. Uh, you know, I, I always say a lot of people deserve credit for a World Cup win. It's, it's very rare. It's one or two people. But certainly, if I think about the real key drivers and leaders of that were Andrew Strauss as an architect and Owen Morgan, who, who led the culture and the team element of it, and then obviously heavily supported by the coaches, Trevor and Farby and, and the other coaches and support staff, and also the selectors. You know, A lot of people had a big part to play in that. But Andrew Strauss kind of had the vision of we performed really poorly in the 2015 World Cup and got knocked out far earlier than we probably should do as, as England. Uh, and yeah, it was a fairly desperate state actually. And between him and Owen Morgan, they mapped out a way forward with, with the coaching team. And yeah, exciting journey, really, really exciting journey. The cultural shift and the performance shift was great. And it's a big piece of work from a lot of people. Uh, you know, you talk about changing the playing style and really understanding what it was going to take to win in 50 over cricket because we were playing the wrong brand of cricket probably uh, and they managed to do that quite quickly uh, certainly in terms of my involvement you know much of that was done by by those guys but I tried to pick up some of that work and I worked quite closely with Andrew Strauss in trying to make sense of things like the playing style tried to turn it into things like attributes and criteria and ob objective metrics that we can try and assess players uh, try and select the right group of players and assess them. Uh, we set up things like assessment opportunities, so you might remember it, but we did we twice did a North versus South series uh, in the winter, which was great, a huge opportunity for, for us to assess players. And that was almost a catalyst of some of our England selection processes now and scouting processes. I, I tried a few things and Andrew Strauss really liked it and then we ended up embedding some of those processes. Uh, and we had to be really resilient all the way through. You know, we had... Two years out, we had the Champions Trophy and we obviously lost to Pakistan. Uh, I think it was in the semi-finals, and we learned some lessons from that. Tried to do a lot of what-if planning. And then even on the eve of the World Cup, you know, we always get some things thrown at you, like 
a talent like Joffre Archer emerging, how we get into him in the, into the team. You know, we were fortunate at selection to have more players that were good enough than we needed to pick. You know, it's very rare that you've got more players than you need. You know, some really good players missed out in the World Cup and that's a tough thing for them. But it was great for English cricket, you know, and, you know, we had other things that we had to deal with. And obviously through the World Cup, we had the ups and downs and, you know, we had a tricky period and we had to go into that India game getting a win and we did and we really turned it on in the back end of the competition, which was brilliant. And I suppose the biggest thing to say about the World Cup is 2019 was a year when we really wanted to inspire the nation. Uh, we had Ashes at home and we had World Cup at home and, and you know, there was probably no better way to do that than the game that we ended up playing. You know, unbelievable World Cup final, you know, the most bizarre and incredible game of cricket probably ever. But I think bigger than that, the thing that I, I, that I take from it and a lot of the people at the ECB do is the journey, you know, 2015 being kind of nowhere and the journey we went on and how much everybody invested in that journey. But at the end of it, we had a 15-man squad, which I felt played the right brand of cricket, exciting cricket. They were representative, I think, of the nation. Uh, you, know, you know, you know, my area is player ID back then. You know, I know some of the data behind the makeup of the group. You know, we've got, we had seven seven players who were from the south of the country, six from the north and a couple from the Midlands. So it was good geographical spread. I think we had something like eight, eight of the players had state education, seven had private education. So a good split there. We had three, three individuals from black and ethnic minority backgrounds. So we had a real diverse multicultural team that was representative of the nation playing an exciting brand of cricket in an amazing World Cup final. So it couldn't have gone any better, really. And you mentioned Archer there. Was it, was it a difficult... Was, there, was it a difficult decision to include him into that final squad? You talked about it being a journey and then players missing out like David Willey. Was it when it came to selection, that final call? Well, it was, it was definitely a difficult selection. You know, most selections are fairly challenging because you're dealing with people's careers and their livelihoods. So you know, they all have difficulties. And that was mainly difficult, as I said, because we had, we had more players than we needed who were good enough. And someone like David Willey missing out, incredibly unfortunate, you know, really strong player. And you saw what he did this summer when he played well again for England on a bit of a comeback. But look, what wasn't difficult was knowing how good Joffre Archer was. We saw that quite quickly and early and we'd monitored him for a while, even before he qualified uh, to play for England. Uh, but yeah, fitting 17 players who were good enough into 15 was quite challenging. But we just knew we had to try and find a way to get Joffre in because he was... And had some real X factor as we've seen. You talked about the culture that the captain implemented as well. Yeah, a slight curveball with the Alex Hales incident as well. Was it, is that just an example of the players kind of taking charge and you know in in that kind of environment? Yeah, and like, probably not fair for me to get drawn too much into the Alex Hales kind of case and scenario. But like you say, it's a good example of the leadership uh, and by that I mean you know the captain yeah but also the coaching staff and the senior players but the leadership making a decision that, that was in England's best interest and that best reflected the culture of the team and yeah, on the eve of the World Cup we certainly didn't want something that was going to derail us and Owen Morgan and the lads probably made the decision that they thought was best. And then when it comes to obviously you've successful World Cup campaign there's some people maybe saying that, you know, you took the eye off the Red Bull game. What would you say um, to those to, to the few critics that do mention that? What, over the last few years? Or do you mean last summer with the Ashes? Or, or over the past, like, in, in the, the test form has been slightly up and down in comparison to the White Ball game, which has just skyrocketed. Some people have suggested that um, um, 
taking the eye the eye off 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 the longer form. Well, look, there's a number of interpretations of that. I guess one way of looking at it might be that maybe we had the biggest ground to make up in white ball cricket because we were so far behind. So the trajectory might have seen, seemed a little bit more linear. Uh, that might be one view of it. I suppose the nature of test cricket, and it's probably why it's called test cricket, is that it's so difficult for things like conditions and home advantage. You know, we've had a period of test cricket, probably the last year booked a trend, but before that we've had a period of test cricket where winning away from home was incredibly difficult and most people were dominant at home. So you had variability in everybody's results, actually, and we were no different. Uh, that said, it's worth saying that since 2018, since sort of May 2018, we've had an incredibly successful test record, actually. Uh, probably as successful as English cricket has ever had in terms of uh, results and, and win percentages. Uh, you know, we've, we've, you know we've, we've won something like eight, eight test matches in a row, which I don't think we've done for a hell of a long time, other than the early Michael Vaughan era. Uh, we've, we've won 3-0 in Sri Lanka. Uh, even take something like last summer's Ashes you know we were disappointed to draw the Ashes uh, the reality is the last two World Cups before it so 2015 Australia winning 2011 India winning if you take those two teams who were fantastic teams they won their World Cup and then lost their next series immediately after it so India did it and Australia did it we had back to back you know we went straight into an Ashes which is probably a bigger challenge as anything. And we know how tough a challenge that is, taking on the Aussies wherever you're playing them. Actually, to not lose the series is better than the last two World Cup winners did. And we drew the series and naturally, we obviously wanted to have won it. So you could argue we did better last summer than the previous two World Cup winners with their next series. So, so I'd say, look, I'm not sure I buy into the concepts of our test form. I think there's a lot of noise in some of that. It might be that it hasn't been as smooth a curve of our, of our one-day cricket, of course. But certainly since 2018, our test form has been pretty strong. How hard was it to kind of plan to peak for both? If you talk about planning and things that went involved, um, that has gone involved over the years, but it's had two huge moments in English cricket, the World Cup and the Ashes. But how hard was it? A lot of players crossing over in both formats, rest and recovery, all that kind of stuff. A word on that, maybe? Yeah, and the simple answer is incredibly hard, actually. Uh, Planning for one peak is hard enough. Planning for twin peaks is really difficult, particularly when they're that close together. So we tried our best. And I think we did a reasonable enough job, actually. Uh, as I said, you know, winning winning one and drawing the other, you know, we did a pretty good job. Uh, I guess a year or so out, we got into real detail with some of that planning. We talked about individual player programmes, their workloads, their physical conditioning, what it was going to take to go from one for the other probably because of some of our early World Cup results and us needing to win games meant we couldn't be as creative for some of our rotation. You know, if, let's say we'd have qualified for the knockout stages a little bit earlier, you might have been able to do a bit of a rotation and keep people fresher and take someone like Mark Wood, for example, got injured in the World Cup final and then we didn't see him after that. If he'd have had some rotation, he might have got through and got into the ashes. So, you know, hindsight's a great thing and results didn't work out that way. So as, as much as you plan, you've got to be able to adapt and and ultimately, we're still facing some of those prioritizations now. You know, this summer we had, we ended up playing back-to-back -back games in back-to-back -back series, multiple formats concurrently, different bubbles operating with twice as many players and twice as many staff. So when you talk about planning for different peaks or even different aims and objectives, 
ultimately it's about your strategy for that and strategy i believe is about prioritization so at any given time you need to think to yourself what takes what takes priority over the other and with last summer we probably had to go plan as best we can for the whole summer but we probably have to nail what's in front of us first which is the world cup and then quickly adapt to the next focus so you've got to prioritize i guess and at the minute we're still trying to prioritize through this winter we've got three formats and we can't give all three of them always the same attention because we can't all be in the same place at the same time and then just to end on what's the vision for for english cricket moving forward yeah well i talked earlier around what we were trying to do in 2019 but 2020 has been a really difficult year for everybody for a number of reasons and and our, I guess our organisational vision is to inspire generations to want to play cricket. That involves having a senior team playing an exciting brand of cricket and heroes like Ben Stokes and Jofra Archer and Joss Butler and Owen Morgan and Joe Root, guys like that doing great things on TV for people to watch. So that's the vision. It's going to be tricky with everything else that's going on in people's lives. From a England team perspective, you know, we want to be the most respected team in the world. And I don't just mean cricket team, I mean across sports, you know. And that's the culture and the way we play our cricket, an exciting brand. It's the strength of our system. So the international pathway and some of my responsibilities, but also the county system. And then we know we also need to deliver consistent performances. You know, we talked about it a little bit. We've been, as I said, since 2018, we've been pretty consistent, actually. And we're probably winning at about 70% uh, across formats and series, which is pretty high if you look at international sport or any team sport. So we want to try and stay around about that threshold, if not higher. And we've got, this winter, we've got some tough test cricket in the subcontinent, which we want to do well in. We've got the ashes on the horizon sort of a year from now. So they're, they're obviously a big, important focus for us. And then in white ball cricket, we've got the T20 World Cups coming up. You know, we've got one next year and that's a real priority. And we'd love to be holding the 50 over and the T20 World Cup at the same time. I don't think anyone's done that before. So we'd quite like to achieve that. So... You know, as an organisation, it's all about inspiration. But as a team, it's about being the most respected team in the world on and off the field and, and winning enough to, to keep everyone excited. Mo, Mo, perfect. Really appreciate your time. Fantastic insight into your own personal journey and and, and the years that have gone have just gone by. So thank you very much. Thanks, Neil. Enjoyed it. Uh, all the best, Mo. Thank you. So Neil Kagram, Cricket Last Wiz, Mo Bobat. Thank you.